Everything's true. God's an astronaut. Oz is over the rainbow. The Midian's where the monsters live. Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. I want to thank you guys for joining me for episode four. And a big thanks to everyone that checked out episode three, where I discussed the fifth Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child. I know it's a little unorthodox to kind of jump right into a sequel like that, but I'm a sequel kind of guy, so somebody you'll come to know about me uh, the more we, uh, the more I do this show. So expect lots of sequels. I'm going to pepper originals. I promised an original. <laughs> it wouldn't just keep being an endless string of sequels. So we're going to be discussing an original film this week, but I, I am a sequel hound. I, I love the concept, as I talked about last week. So, But originals this week. So for episode four, I'm going to be taking a look at Clive Barker's Nightbreed. So I guess a bit of background here. My history as a horror fan actually started with Clive Barker. Now, I've told this story before. I've told it on... A frame apart, I've told it on 14 months apart, but I guess I'll tell it one more time because you really don't have to twist my nuts too hard to get me to tell this story. So uh, Reader's Digest condensed version here. When I was 11 years old, I decided that I wanted to watch a horror movie. And I'd been, you know, I'd seen things like Tremors and Army of Darkness, but, you know, good primer stuff for kids. So I'm at the video store with my dad at uh, Mr. Convenience on River Road, uh, which is still there. And they still rent movies, which is kind of always nice to go in and see that. And I'm looking around the shelves, and I pick up a copy of uh, John Carpenter's Body Bags. Actually, it was going to be my first choice. And I hand it to my dad, and I said, Dad, I want to I want to rent this. I want to watch a scary movie. And he kind of gruffly grabs it from me. He's like, Ugh. no. If you want to get a real, want to get a scary movie, get a real, real scary movie. So he kind of spins around looking for something he recognizes, and he sees uh, Hellraiser 3, thinking it's the first Hellraiser, and that he's going to scare me straight. You know, like give, catch kids smoking, so you give him a whole pack of cigarettes, because that never bred an entire generation of smokers ever. So by giving me a movie that has elements of the mythology of the first Hellraiser, but without the soul-destroying uh, tone, <laughs> subject matter of the first one, what he actually did was indirectly created a horror fan for life. I was hooked after that. The following Christmas, I was given the first Hellraiser, along with Children of the Corn on VHS. Two films I still have, those copies are still in my collection today. And they were actually the seeds from which my, uh, my collection has grown over the years. So from age 11 to starting with two films to 35, I think it's somewhere around 846 between movie or VHS and DVD. And yes, that is a bit of a brag. I'm proud of it. it. It's a silly, odd thing to be pleased with because some days it feels a little bit more like a millstone around my neck. But I, I still love it. I still, every now and then I'll go and I'll have a look at those two tapes and be like, huh, you know, it's uh, one of the only really good lines, lines from Prometheus when he says something to the effect of, you know, from small things grow convoluted stupid prequels but whatever i was also i believe it was that year or the couple years later i was given his book clive barker's a to z of horror where it's it's not quite an encyclopedia but it's a bit of a walkthrough of the history of horror uh, each letter of the alphabet he assigns to different things it's one of the first places i learned about characters like ed Gein and who text chainsaw massacre is based off of in psycho and 
really exploring the idea of horror as an art, because that's what someone like Clyde Barker does, because it's not just his three movies, because he only has a very tiny filmography with Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and Lord of Illusions, but he's a multimedia artist. He is a filmmaker. He's a visual artist with his paintings and his drawings and his sketching, and he's mostly, or I'd say primarily known as a writer of... I guess you would call it weird fiction, or he would call it imaginative fiction. So I didn't read a lot of the books when I was younger. I tracked down The Hellbound Heart, because being a, a Hellraiser freak, I had to know the source material. And like all three of the films that he's made, they're very literal adaptations of his books. So I was actually lucky enough, uh, working for Rumorg as a volunteer for many years, Rumorg magazine, in 2005, he was actually the guest of honor at the festival. And I didn't get to speak to him personally, but he was around the whole time and incredibly pleasant. Well, I remember being at the office getting ready, uh, getting ready for the show, and a call came in, and it was Clive asking if he could paint, if they thought it would be fun for him to paint so people could come and watch and watch his process. And of course, everyone was flabbergasted. If you're not... If you're only familiar with Clive Barker's work, like you just think, oh, Hellraiser, he's the guy that did Hellraiser, do yourself a favor and just go and look at his artwork. Everything from the, the hundreds and hundreds of paintings he did for Aberat, just any, anything that he's done. So we're on the convention floor at the Metro Toronto Convention Center, and he comes out, and we the guys in Room Org have been scrambling to get uh, all the paints and everything that he needed in a giant easel. And he, we set up a little stage, set up the giant, a big, big canvas. And he comes out in his painting clothes, so they're all the stuff that he brought, and it's all covered in paint, and just the perfect image of an artist. And he's just kind of not saying much, just kind of prowling around this little space where there's hundreds and hundreds of people gathered around watching him and just kind of tuned everyone out like they weren't there. And he stares at this canvas for a couple of minutes, and then turns to, it was Rodrigo or Marco, the guys from Rue Morgan, and says, I need four hours. And he then proceeds to paint. No, no sketching. No, I don't know if he had a doodle or something that he had done beforehand. But just, just with brush and oils, he proceeds to paint. And it's one of the most marvelous things I've ever got to witness. I only got to, to watch for a short time. I couldn't stay the whole four hours because I had other work to do there, but it was just incredible to just, he was so zoned in and just bringing this creature to life. It actually ended up being the cover of one of the Rumor Halloween issues and the painting itself still to this day hangs at the Rumor offices. And it's, it's stunning the way he uses oils and the way just his, his artwork in general. So it would be years later when I actually kind of dove into his his literary body of work, starting with Mr. Be Gone, when he published that. And I think I got that in 2007 or 2008, right around the time it came out. And then from there to the first three volumes of the Books of Blood, the Aberat series, which is hands down my personal favorite. It's very much a Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz scenario of this young girl being sucked into the world of the Aberat. And I cannot recommend those books enough. Uh, Thief of Always is incredible. Weave World is good, but overwritten. Um, some uh, common criticism I've heard of his work is Clive's a natural sprinter. 
he can tend to get a little long in the tooth uh, uh, when he goes for bigger works. I found that firsthand with uh, a Magicka. Well, a stunning book. It was. I had to. I had to stop. I've taken like a f- six month break now. I think after getting about almost three quarters of the way through, because I was just so tired. It was like being pummeled with brilliance bricks. You're just exhausted from carrying this book. But the movie we're here to discuss now, Nightbreed, is like all three of his films, based of one of his books, and that's nineteen his nineteen eighty eight novel Cabal. Now it's a very direct adaptation. He doesn't take a lot of liberties with the source material. And that's both a positive and a negative on the film. But we'll we'll get into that later because I don't want you to think I'm just right off the hop just starting to criticize Nightbreed. It's the only reason I'm doing this episode so I can take a piss on it. No, not at all. I really do love this movie. But it's we'll discuss more some of the pitfalls of being, you could almost say, a little too slavish to your source material. Now, the film itself has a long, rather sordid history of getting to the screen in the form that we have it today with this final, his final director's cut. You can almost call it the the Blade Runner of the horror universe, and film fans know that movie has had so many alternate cuts and studio meddling and recutting and rejiggering because they didn't think the audience would understand. And they're they're very similar in that way. They're films that were ahead of their time and people didn't understand it so studios panic because they have to try and you know market it to the to the base audience so what happened was he made the movie and then after the studio viewed his cut of the film they took it the producers at morgan's creek took it out of his hands and drastically recut it and honestly it's i it sucks, you know. It, it's always terrible when you hear stories about the money men and the producers not understanding the, somebody's work, especially when you have a director like Clive Barker, who is a writer, director, and a singular artist, auteur. I guess you would use that term. Guys like you know, familiarly enough, David Cronenberg, Guillermo del Toro, John Carpenter. You know, outside of horror filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, these are guys, Wes Anderson as well. These are guys that are, they're visualists. They have their own style. The Coen brothers, filmmakers like that, they make their kind of films. And if you hire them to do that, you'd think you'd let them do that. Even the fact that these guys had read the script, you know, they had signed off on it. Hopefully at least one of them had cracked the spine on the book to read it and know what the hell they were getting into. Despite all that, I can't say I'm surprised in 1990 they completely balked at this because this film is nothing like what was happening at the time. The slasher craze was kind of was at its apex. It was starting to die out, but the studio is still desperately grabbing onto that. And this is anything but the standard fare that was being released to theaters and to video stores. You have a hero that's morally ambiguous, and there's no clear villain. How the that just just saying that sentence? I know the panic that it elicits. In, in producers and in money people. Because how the, how the fuck do you market a film like that? What do you do with that? You know, there's, I think it was Ridley Scott said, being ahead of your time is almost worse than being behind the time because you're still not in time. So they took the film, cut the shit out of it, and released the theatrical version of Nightbreed that existed for 20 plus years in the consciousness. 
built a cult following. There was a diehard group of fans here that loved the movie, loved the book, because even the the truncated, butchered, you could say butchered, theatrical cut, you can get a sense that there's a hell of a lot more going on, that this world is bigger, that the film feels clunky. And I've watched films like that where you're, you're going along with it. I think um, a good example of that is the most recent Fantastic Four reboot, it's not a good film, front to back, but all of a sudden, halfway through, it feels like you get this jarring stop, and it feels like a different movie starts. And that's what happens with Nightbreed. It's all over the place. You have a, It's a barely held together narrative, but the world is so rich, and it feels like scenes are just being cut short, and there should be more happening. That's how powerful the film is, that even in the cut-up form that we had for so many years, you can still hear this film kind of screaming to be released, you know, despite the fact that it's it's been cut to pieces. So for years there had been discussion and Clive answering questions in interviews, and he'd been very candid that the film had been cut up. And but the thoughts were that it was lost. That the because most of the time when films are because everything used to be shot and cut on film, at the end of the day, unless the studio wanted to to store the trims, as they're called, or alternate scenes or alternate cuts, they were usually destroyed. It's not like nowadays where you dump everything into a computer and you can just throw it on a hard drive and just store that hard drive forever. You have to pay to have, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of feet of film stored and stored properly so that it doesn't degrade. So these bits and pieces and Clive's cut was considered lost. Until about the early 2000s, when there was a, a renewed interest to start tracking down, renewed interest by Clive and those involved to start trying to track down the pieces of it just to see if they could find them, you know, give it one last ditch effort and say, can we find this? Can we go on this? You know, even if it's a wild goose chase, then we can definitively say yes or no, it doesn't exist. So actually in Clive's house, in his archives, they turned up some dupe tapes of an edit that had been done because you would they were taping the edit as they were going along. So they're running the film and they're recording it onto VHS. So they tracked down these kind of copies of copies upon copies. So these beat up tapes that had a huge amount of these deleted scenes, extended scenes, etc., so putting all that together resulted in what was called the Cabal Cut. And that toured different theaters, different festivals. I actually got to go see it. So you're watching this weird amalgamation where you're going from the, re- like the normal film version, theatrical version of Nightbreed that we're used to, and they had just cut in these horribly degraded scenes from these VHS tapes that they'd found. Not perfect, but you got a a sense of what the film could be. So given the fan reaction to the Cabal Cut, it was a huge success. People were stoked. And the producers kind of got wind of this, the owners of the license at Morgan Creek. And all of a sudden, the search for the actual film negatives with these scenes started to pay dividends. Funny that when there's some money to be made, you no, know, when there's art, only artistic integrity at state, at stake, they, they couldn't find shit. But you know, 
dangle that money pouch and all of a sudden, oh yeah, these cans are right here. Oh, they were propping up my coffee table. I can't believe I didn't notice them. Scum suckers. But that's, that's the business. That's why it's called the film business. Okay. It's money talks. So after that, Clive got a hold of the film and partnered with Scream Factory and they produced the director's cut. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So if you, I believe it's streaming on Amazon Prime, the uh, Shutter might have it as well. The Scream Factory DVD slash Blu-ray is well worth the purchase price. There's an excellent documentary on there and you can watch, it, it's very, it's well worth it just to see the final presented version, the way Nightbreed was intended. So the film that I'm discussing, the director's cut of Nightbreed, has 45 minutes of new footage in the film, even though it's only 20 minutes longer than the theatrical cut. So it is a completely different film than the theatrical version, than the the classic VHS that's been floating around for years. You almost really can't compare them because tonally, structurally, they're completely different films. This is the movie that Clive set out to make, presented to the studio, and they went, nope, sorry, back to Britain with you. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So I guess we should get into the IMDb synopsis because I've been talking for almost 20 minutes and I really haven't even started to tell you guys just what the hell Nightbreed is about. So here we go. A troubled young man is drawn to a mythical place called Midian where a variety of friendly monsters are hiding from humanity. Meanwhile, a sadistic serial killer is looking for a patsy. Yeah. Okay. That's, it's a hard movie to sum up because that is technically what's it what it is about but there's so much more going on in the film so this idea of friendly monsters is a a very silly term because it just makes me think of my pet monster because he's a monster of a friend you know he's big and blue and scary but he's a friendly monster too that's always important to remember the, the central conceit that Clive is approaching this movie with, and also it's something that's in a lot of his written work, is the idea of the monster as hero, or a, a heroic figure. They may do monstrous things, but it's just their nature. You know, the, we, don't, we don't consider the wolf evil for, you know, for, for eating prey. It's just their nature. It, it's a horrific act to to watch but we don't consider it an evil thing it's just what they do and that doesn't and when the the monsters in nightbreed when they do something like that it doesn't prevent them from being noble or heroic they're just natural they're that's just who they are it's what they are and our hero the one who assumes our heroics in this film is played by craig schaefer and his name is boone now boone is the classic outsider archetype so I guess in dry kind of technical terms, the character is usually a loner or an outsider in their own world, and they gain entry by some means into a new one by generally casting off their old life, going through some kind of process for Boone here. It's dying. You know, it can be any any process, any kind of little hero's journey or transformation that they have to take. And that entry into this new world acts as a catalyst for change of that world. And that generally results in one form of ruckus or another. Here it ends in the destruction of Midian. This is a, a very familiar story. It's something that lots of different filmmakers have played with from 
Avatar to Dances with Wolves to Ferngully, The Last Rainforest. So it's something we've all seen. It's a it's a classic form of of the hero's journey. The well, the monsters here are heroic, and that's how he plays them. It's the humans, the or naturals, as the breed refers to them. So delightful. I kind of feel like they're calling them muggles. This concept of the human characters being more horrific than the monsters, it's something that Guillermo del Toro would pick up in a couple of years after this when he did his first film, Kronos, and continue to explore for the bulk of his, of his filmmaking career. The idea of the monster as a figure of not just fear, but of empathy or even sympathy, and that everyday human beings, you know, the normal, supposed, sensible, the usual heroes of the films, are actually more dangerous than the so-called monstrous characters. Cool. Still with me? Now, these human characters are villains, I guess, because it's, as I talked about before, when you have a more, you have a film with a morally ambiguous hero and no clear villains. So these villains are broken down into, you could say, two groups. So first we have Decker, played deliciously by David Cronenberg, but I'll talk more about him in a minute because there's a lot to unpack there. And the police and their posse that they wrangle up, who subsequently raid Midian. So. The police in this film, the authority figures, quote unquote, are so almost so over the top evil that in certain parts it almost becomes a little comical. There's a scene where they're handing out guns and weapons and the one cop is almost er eroticized holding a garrote wire. He, He runs it over his mouth like it's just it almost gets a little comic booky there, but it adds to almost the kind of comic book spirit of the film. Now, these this group of of officers and civilians, the police chief refers to them as the Sons of the Free, and they are a full-on paramilitary white ring white pleh, Let's try to get this correct. Right-wing militia group. They're heavily armed and in their minds they are morally righteous. Where have we heard someone like that before? It's funny because as a kid, you militias are they're all in the news now, these kind of right wing paramilitary groups. But I remember as a kid, it was something discussed on the news or in documentaries is a little bit of a joke. Uh, growing up in southern Ontario, we got a lot of stations from New York and Buffalo and stuff and the northern United States there. So I remember hearing people refer to things like the Michigan militia, you know, kind of these heavily armed quacks that were out in the woods, but they were treated as a bit of a joke in the 90s. Just kind of doomsday nutters that are out there playing soldier, and no one really took them seriously. But as we've seen over the last few years, their their representation of this film is more relevant than ever. With the rise of far-right groups, anti-immigration groups, incels, neo-Nazis organizing online, you know, and after Charlottesville, when they all got together and had their little tiki march, which is still horrific. It's, it's funny, we don't talk about that much anymore because each day is more insane. I think there was the meme going around, you know, January 1st, 2020. I think we're off to a good start. January 2nd, oh, Australia's on fire. Oh, January 3rd, oh, World War Three announced. January 4th, well, that escalated quickly. So it's easy to, you know, we can easily substitute 
the breed, the night breed in the film for any marginalized or persecuted groups. And that's obviously his, the intention that Clive had here. And the, the terror that the breed is subjected to at the end by these groups it's nothing new to them. They are a a fully realized, persecuted culture. Clive Barker, he takes the time to show us this history of persecution. Instead of just telling us, he lets us see it. The Inquisition flashback that Boone's girlfriend Lori witnesses, is it's particularly brutal. It's And it's fun, always with the Bible in hand, it seems, with these guys. They've always got God on their side, an old righteous God who just is, just the Old Testament, just pissed and shitty with everybody, really. And it's not hiding from the fact that it's drawing inspiration from us, how we as human beings have committed atrocities so many times across our own history, whether it's the Spanish Inquisition, whether it's the witch hunts, the the Holocaust, Rwandan genocides, and right up to today, how many news stories a week do we get about the camps in China where they're they're locking up Muslims, or even the the camps at the border in the United States? Like, these these are camps, like, with a capital C, like, don't, don't try, don't believe anything else. That's what these things are. Anytime a group is declared, you know, the dreaded other, it really doesn't take people long to start doing horrible things, whether it's to, you know, different marginalized groups throughout our own history or the night breed in this film. So that's the first of our villains. And as you can obviously see, that would make a studio quake because it's like, oh, okay, so they're not our clear villain. They only kind of show up towards the end. Cool. All right. Terror, panic, you know, sweating, sweating in their offices. And the other villain, as they talk about in the IMDb synopsis, our, our crafty serial killer, is David Cronenberg's Decker. And Cronenberg isn't known for his acting. I, I know him in this, and he does a quick cameo in Jason X. So kind of polar opposites in his act. He's a director. He's a filmmaker. That's what he's known for. But he plays Decker so cold and so quiet and so calm that he almost feels less real than these over-the-top monsters that he's juxtaposed with. And the crimes that he commits, the these acts of violence, because we see the breed committing acts of violence, but the, the violence he's committing because his performance is so cold and clinical and so singularly evil, it actually ends up feeling more horrible. From the, the slaughter of the family at the start of the film to all of his subsequent killings, his plan to frame Boone and use him as a scapegoat to hide his own crimes... Just that idea of a, a therapist, a, a trusted medical professional, someone that has sworn to uphold the highest moral standards, not just being, you know, a, a violent, murdering psychopath in a, in a crazy awesome mask. He is violating Boone's trust so disgustingly, so horridly, that it feels almost as an atrocious level of violence as when he's stabbing somebody that that incredible betrayal of trust and Decker's whole image that he has of himself and that's what makes him such an incredible villain even though he's not central to the plot he drives a lot of things but he's just he's operating almost more as kind of a pinhead-esque character where he's just kind of floating in the background and 
where he draws his power in this entire image of himself is the ability to take life, to have the power over someone else to end it. Whereas when the breed kills somebody, it's to eat. You know, they keep referring to them, you know, you're not night breed, you're a natural, so you're meat for the beast. That's just that's just their nature. It's who they are naturally. Whereas Decker has taken on this persona. And it's the idea of something like the Nightbreed to him would be so repellent that, you know, these creatures who can live, if not forever, they can live lifetimes. That idea to him would be a total antithesis to this worldview that he's created. And he would be repelled to the point that he would have to destroy them, you know, to take eternity from them. This thing that by their nature they have been gifted with, you know, they, this trade they've made to be this thing. They have been given these, this gift of, of unnaturally long life, you could almost say. So he'd have to do that. He would have to prove to himself that he could take life from those who have transcended it. You know, they've transcended dying. So he would have to prove to himself that he could still kill something like that. And ultimately he would have to see their world and Midian itself destroyed. And that's, that's kind of the central crux of the film. We have Boone who is along with his girlfriend and played so wonderfully by Annie Bobby. Cause she's kind of just this angelic character floating through this film and Decker and Boone, all three of them are kind of on this collision course with this new world, with Midian. And I want to take some time to talk about Midian itself, the home of the Nightbreed. It's just the word itself, Midian. It conjures up almost an otherworldly quality. It's, for those of you that don't know, and I didn't know this, I had to do, I did some research for this, obviously, because believe it or not, some of these facts I don't just know off the top of my head, though, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a film fan. I just play one on the internet. So in the Bible, uh, Midian is where Moses spent his exile. And that's where, um, that's where God, the Old Testament angry God, showed up as the burning bush. That's something you might be familiar with. Also, Snapple Fact, it's the basis for the Cradle of Filth album of the same name that featured uh, narration by Doug Bradley. Uh, who you guys will probably know as Pinhead from the Hellraiser films. And he also plays Lylesburg in this movie, the kind of de facto leader, you could say, of the breed. He's their, their high priest. Now, the presentation of Midian in this film, the, the city of the breed, is equal parts arcane street bazaar meets kind of this hallowed refuge slash temple combined with a complete and total surreal nightmare. It's the, you know, if you took the Garden of Earthly Delights and dropped it into a, you know, Dark Ages Egyptian street fair, that's kind of what we're getting with Midian. And as Boone explores it and later Laurie explores it, we're kind of moving from one crazy set piece, from one crazy set piece to the next. And as we descend deeper and deeper into the bowels of this seemingly endless place, and it it looks insane. You start to feel a little insane because it's just 
image after image, almost these painterly, we're moving, you know, it's like walking through a gallery, you know, the incredible effects works from the artist and Clive's designs, because so much of the design work in the film stemmed from, from his pen and ink drawings. And it feels crazy, but for the breed, it's just life. We, it gives us a sense of kind of their day-to-day existence. As I referenced Guillermo del Toro earlier, it's, there's a, a clear parallel, at least a clear parallel for me, to something like the troll market in Hellboy 2. It's just that troll market's a little less grim. So it's kind of the flip side. You know, you could imagine that the breed, if they ever left Midian, they, they want, some of them might turn up in the, in the troll market. Or maybe the night market from Neverwhere, but that's a discussion for a different episode. So this idea of them having a home, having a city, by grounding them in such a, a real normal place, because cities to us, they're, they're not just places that we live, they're how we identify, you know, I'm from somewhere, you know, I spent eight years living in Toronto. And even though I'm from Peterborough there, there became a time where I, even still being home back in Peterborough for almost a year, there's part of me that still identifies Toronto as my home. The piece of you starts to dwell there more so than just the physical. And the city itself starts to kind of identify you and you with it, you become reflections of each other. And by doing that, by giving these monsters a place like this, you know, the last of the tribes of the moon, as he so wonderfully puts it, because Barker is capable of these turns of phrases like that, just in one sentence, just says so much. It grounds them. They become more than just actors and actresses in rubber suits. They become real, tangible, reality-based creatures. They exist in a world of laws and hierarchy and, you know, rules and punishment, religion, prophecy, they become tangible because with a film like this, it would be so easy to just turn it into an effects fest, to just turn it into a monster mash where it's like, Hey guys, we're moving from one wackadoo scene to the next with no real sense of, of realistic grounding, you know, no mythology to support all of this on. And from the that from Cabal itself, from just the pages in the book, there is this incredible sense of reality, of a real world nature to these fantastical creatures where you believe it, you buy into this world. I talked about, I think it was in the previous episode in Dream Child where I talk about the, the hardest time for, or why horror is so hard to do is because you have to create a suspension of disbelief in your audience because you have such fantastical imagery and by having such a real world mythology. And even though we're not given all of it, he only needs to give us just enough to get us through the film. That mythology helps us to further suspend our disbelief because everything feels tangible. It feels, I guess, written in its own way. So it's something that we can easily believe in and let ourselves go with. And despite the darkness of Midian, because it is a very dark presentation, you know, it's not the, the wonderfully lit troll market. This is a, a dark world for dark characters. There is still an undeniable romance and sense of adventurousness to this place. 
and and to the breed themselves. They are a romantic idea. It's kind of like running away to join the the most arcane circus you could imagine is what it would be like to run away to join the breed because everyone has that fantasy of you know I don't, I don't know if kids still do it nowadays but I, I ask I say that so much and I've been okay boomered a couple of times bitching about that but regardless there is that sense of everyone had or at least we did when we were young that I'm going to run away and join the circus a world so beyond our own where it's all about kind of I don't want to say living a hedonistic lifestyle, but living a very free life where it's you, you exist as you are and you're just kind of in the wind of experience in the world. And to that end, one of the, the creatures in the film sums it up perfectly when she refers to the fact that some of them can fly, some of them can change shape, some of them can become smoke. And these are the very things that we dream about as humans how like one of my favorite dreams other than dreaming about being a ghostbuster because that's number one but how many times have you uh, listeners out there had a dream where you can fly i don't get them often but when i do they're just absolutely stunning this idea of becoming the other you know and i think it's something that is one of the primary things that attracts people to, to genre fiction, to genre filmmaking, horror comics, is this concept of being able to transcend and to become not necessarily a heroic figure. You know, the, these aren't superheroes, but to become something larger than us, to belong to something that is so singularly unique and outside of it, that it just being that, no matter what you can do, automatically makes you special. And I, I think that's obviously, that's incredibly attractive to people. I know it's something that's incredibly attractive to me to, to look at these characters and go, well, I wouldn't necessarily want to live in their world because it is, it's violent and perilous and treacherous, but it still doesn't take away from the romance of the whole piece. Now, despite the fact that this is the preferred version, the final version, the film that Clive Barker intended to make, it's, as I said towards the start, it's not a perfect film by any means. For a director's second film, it's monumentally ambitious and probably at the end of the day, a little too ambitious because to try and wrangle a film like this, having only made one before, you you have to have an incredible sense of power and control and be in a situation where you can exercise that power and control. Because while the first Hellraiser is an excellent film, don't get me wrong, I love that movie, it is a very small, very contained film. There are a lot of very heavy themes and a lot of very heavy subject matter you know, this idea of pleasure and pain and sadomasochism and demons in hell and incest and family fucking nonsense. It's craziness. But it's a very contained, straightforward film. And jumping from a low-budget, you know, one or two setting contained horror film to something this sprawling is is monumental. Budgets going from, I think, a million or two million on the first Hellraiser upwards of 10 or $11 million on this. That's a huge change, a huge jump. And there is a sense that the film, 
it is still a little unruly. The the pacing is a little stop start in certain sections. Some of the effects, because they're trying to do so much, because if you look up ambitious horror film in the dictionary, Nightbreed is going to be one of the first entries. Some of those effects come off a little rubbery, but again, I know and we know now as an audience that that's time and budget. You know, I, I've been lucky enough on a few occasions to meet one of the effects artists who worked on this, Paul Jones, and... He also went on to work on Hellraiser 3 and a bunch of TV shows, an incredibly generous and wonderful man. And he told some stories about it, and he also talks about it on the behind-the-scenes for this film, that they were trying to do so much to create this complete, realized world in a limited amount of time. You know, because at this point in just genre filmmaking, not even just horror filmmaking, there were only so many films that had strove to create such a complete world like this. You know, a, a bit of the more friendly end of the spectrum. Look at films like Brazil, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, you know, and those are films that took a heck of a lot longer to make than what they were trying to do here. But, and also this issue of how literal it is to the book. And that is both a blessing and a curse, because by being so literal and so slavish, to, to use that term, to his source material, we get the richness of the book, because it's a very rich book. And when you have an imagination like Clive Barker's, you, you want as much richness as you can. You want to draw every last gasp and ounce of that imagination and get it onto whether it's paper or canvas or celluloid. But because they stuck to that and because he stuck to that idea, we lose or we're, I don't want to say robbed because it's not the correct term, but we lose out on a more standard film structure, which can make it a little easier for the easier for the audience to get involved. And would that have been better? Maybe. But at the same time, what do you give up? What do you get rid of with something like this? But because we can watch this film now in hindsight, because we can look back on the different cuts, because I was lucky enough to see all the cuts as they were released, if you go into this movie and expect it to be more of a standard book-to-film adaptation, you may be disappointed. You may be caught off guard by the pacing, the fact that it doesn't kind of peak and valley like a standard three-act structure of a film does. But if you go into it knowing that you're going to be getting more of a book-on-film experience, there is I find that makes it a more enjoyable film. Because it is an enjoyable film, despite its flaws and its ambition, I think is what makes it so lovable. Because like I said, there's there's only a handful of films like this. There's only a handful of filmmakers that would have the audacity to do something like this, especially on a limited budget. You know, nowadays it's easy for, you know, films like the Marvel movies or the DC movies or 
to take you into a world that's completely unlike our own. You know, things like Thor Ragnarok or Guardians of the Galaxy, where we're visiting other worlds completely realized for us. Where back then, the, everything's built. You know, there's, there's stop motion in the film. There's beautiful matte paintings. You know, the, the wide shots of Midian are, are mats, obviously. But these are still tangible things. And that creates an experience, a painterly experience that I think the audience notices. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a Marvel freak. We talked about this in episode two, and I'll be talking about it more because there'll be more Marvel episodes this year as phase four starts. But it never feels quite the same as when you're watching a film like Nightbreed that's real, you know, that you can reach in and, and touch it, that you can strike matches on surfaces and this grit and reality that's supported by this incredible mythology. And we're carried forward with this wonderful performance, this almost noirish antihero performance with Boone and his semi-doomed but a great flip on the Romeo and Juliet mythology that he has with his girlfriend Lori. It's it's a great film. I can't say it's underappreciated because it's really not anymore. Nightbreed's one of those films that always had a good following, even in its truncated form, and has been you know, fully celebrated now. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea because it's not straightforward. It's more, I would dare say, more fantasy than horror. It's something that Barker does so well in his written work is, is trotting that line between horror and the horrific, the fantastical and the horrific, and this thin tightrope that you would walk with creatures like this. Because if you were to look at it in a realistic sense, monsters would do horrific things, even though they're fantastical creatures. And that's one of the great things about this film. So check it out. Again, I think it's on Amazon Prime. Well worth your time. Pick up the Scream Factory DVD. I'll try and post some links in the description here on, on SoundCloud if that's where you're listening to it. But excellent movie. Future of the franchise. It's been discussed for years. If I think if we were to go through the roll call of, of directors, other than maybe Stanley Kubrick, Clive Barker might be the king of announced and or otherwise and unrealized projects. There's from Tortured Souls to Thief of Always to the Abrat movies. So many things, projects have been announced and then kind of died on the vine, as it were, put into turnaround and development hell. But when you're dealing with projects that straddle the line between horror, the horrific and the fantastic things acceptable for children, things acceptable for adults, that, that razor's edge that so much of Barker's work walks down and navigates. It's, it's not surprising that so many of these projects get close and then are shot down. The most recent word is that he's working to develop a TV series uh, with uh, Morgan Creek, the owners of the, of the film rights. I think that would actually be fantastic with the with streaming platforms now where you can really get away with anything. A mythology as rich as Nightbreed would benefit so much 
from expanding the story, giving us more history of the breed, giving us more of Boone's life and why and his initial connection to the night breed. You know, because it's in the film he's transformed almost. You know, when he's bitten by Peliquin and he is almost it's a vamp almost kind of a vampire entrance into it. He's bitten and then he is shot down and we see the bite kind of sparkle and, and zip a little bit and he wakes up dead, you know, to quote Megadeth. So, but it's never really answered, was he breed to begin with? Why did he start dreaming about Midian? Is, is someone in his family one of the tribes of the moon that left, that was banished? There's so many wonderful questions. I know there's comics and stuff out there. Yes, Aaron Grinley, I can hear you right now going, well, in issue 37 of this comic, it was answered. Film. As I said, I need the film to tell me. So in terms of a TV series, whether at Amazon, HBO, Netflix, wherever, it would be wonderful with what they can do with effects now, but also, you know, the the retro nostalgia going on with stuff like Stranger Things. It It would be a fantastic thing, and I hope it works because we've had some some stuff from Barker, but he's he's been ill for many years. You know, I think the last new book was Scarlet Gospels, his sequel to to the Hellbound Heart, his the final definitive word on the Hellraiser mythology. Great book, by the way, and it brings in the character of Harry Diamour from The Last Illusion or Lord of Illusions. So it's kind of his little Avengers crossover where Diamour gets to meet Pinhead. So great book, but beyond that, you know, there's long talk of the fourth and final Aberat book to close the quintet. But it would be great to see him kind of come back with something like Nightbreed and really do it to its fullest potential. Because despite how much potential we get to realize and enjoy now with the director's cut, there is a lot more potential there and a lot more excellent source material to be mined. So check it out. On to Star Trek. So as this is episode four of the Steal My Name podcast, it must be time for episode four of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And because it's January 24th, then when you're listening to this, that must mean that this episode was released on January 24th, 1993. So what the heck is this one about? Let's see what IMDb has to say this week. So the episode is called Babel, in which the crew and civilian population of Deep Space Nine begin to speak gibberish when a plague, uh, slash, in quotes, an aphasia virus, engineered by the Bajorans as a weapon against the Cardassians, accidentally gets released into the station's atmosphere. So, this is a great, you could almost call it a a meat and potatoes episode of, of Deep Space Nine. It starts or continues, uh, kicks off with O'Brien's ongoing battle against the, the, the systems, the technology on the station. And the idea of technical problems on Star Trek is, it's nothing new. But in other series, a problem would pop up, and whether it's the MacGuffin for that episode or just something that they're working on as the episode goes along, it would be resolved, wrapped up, move along. But with Deep Space Nine, this battle against technology would become an ongoing theme. Because in, in Roddenberry's future, in the Star Trek future that we've known up to this point, technology is our friend. It is there to serve us, to allow us to go out and, you know, seek new worlds and new civilizations, as it was so eloquently put. 
But because the Deep Space Nine world, they're on a station that was ransacked. It was stripped of everything of value by the Cardassians when they left. And the crew is left to constantly be in a state of fixing things. And on top of fixing the damage the Cardassians did, they have to also have to start integrating Federation technology into the station, their computer systems, and et cetera, et cetera. So they can run as close to a Federation facility as it can, despite the fact that it's having to be retrofit. So the technical problems on the station become almost a reoccurring villain personally for O'Brien. And it's something he's going to deal with over the next seven seasons. And it's one of the things that wonderfully and firmly establishes him as the blue collar character on the show. He is our blue collar working man hero. And it's just another, you know, he's just, all right, get my toolbox, go fix this problem, go fix that problem. And even though he's, he's saying things that are, you know, recalibrate the, the power converters and check the isodine, iodine relays and all these things, this great techno babble that I love. It's it's still just an electrician or a plumber just having to deal with a, a fancy building that is just constantly breaking down, and he's the one on the front line having to deal with it before he slinks home after a 15-hour day to the wife and kids. So just more reasons to completely love O'Brien. This episode also has a lot of great back-and-forth bickering between Odo and Cork, which is a highlight of any episode. And one of the fun things about this one is as the station starts to become affected by this virus and everyone starts to get sick, we actually have to see, we start to see them working together. They're forced to not so much get along, but to have to team up to save the day at the end. And it just further glimpses into this unspoken respect, yet constant contentious relationship that they have with each other. Now, the idea of a, a virus or something coming into a Star Trek episode and causing problems is nothing new. And our MacGuffin here is what they call an aphasia virus. So to quote Dr. Bashir, now this is directly lifted from the episode, so I'll try and get this right. A perceptual dysfunction in which oral and visual stimuli are incorrectly processed by the brain. The actual thinking isn't affected, but they are incapable of expressing themselves or understanding others. The actors on any Star Trek series have to deal with dialogue heavy lifting that actors on other a lot of other shows don't have to worry about. You know, they they have to worry about, you know, the dramatic timing or you being funny or sad or whatever. But with Trek because there's so much as I'm going to refer to it constantly as Trekno babble. There's so much tongue twisting, almost Shakespearean level difficulty to get some of this stuff out and get it out in a way that sounds sensible. I believe it was uh, Carrie Fisher referring to George Lucas, where he says, you know, George, hey, you can write this stuff, but you can't say it. Or it's easy to write, but it's not easy to say. And that's one of the my favorite parts of Star Trek, is any episode where it's a real hard sci-fi problem, I get excited because I know there's going to be just endless speeches full of technical terms made up and real. And it's one of the joys of Trek. So this whole idea of them speaking nonsense 
it comes back to the Bible. It's a Bible-heavy episode this week here. So Midian being something in the Bible. And also we have, if you guys aren't familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. So what had happened was back in the day, like, you know, you know, the day, like before YouTube and stuff, everyone spoke the same language and they all decided that they wanted to build a tower high enough to get closer to God, to meet God. So because they all spoke the same language, they can work together. So they started to build this tower and God wasn't stoked on that because as we talked about earlier, Old Testament God has just, he's got hemorrhoids and his cushion popped and he was just always mad. So he decides that, wait, everyone's going to speak a different language now. So you can't work together anymore. A real dickish thing to do, but just read the Old Testament. It's just full of one dick move after another. He's not a very nice guy. So that is a fun little play here on this babble that everyone's speaking. And this gibberish that they get into, depending on who's delivering it, whether it's a series regular or a really excited background player, it slides on the scale between sincere and silly. Because it's kind of silly, this idea that a virus gets in the air and everyone starts speaking gibberish. Very Trek, very silly. But because it's a medical problem, we actually get to see a bit more of a serious side of Dr. Bashir for the first time. Because he's he's a character they had trouble with for a couple of seasons, trying to figure out his tone. And where does he sit in terms of authority and individual characteristics. What's his pull and push and pull with the other characters on the show. And you get to see a much more serious presentation of him here. It's one of the first episodes where he's not kind of kind of magooing and scared of everybody and the situations he's in. It's, it's a medical issue. This is his wheelhouse. So he's just on on the problem. And it's nice because we get a, a firm look at who he will become as a character as the show moves on. As I said, you know, the mystery virus of the week is classic Star Trek. As something gets onto the ship, the crew acts weird and wacky, whether it makes them get violent, makes them want to fuck. It's, it's something that all the shows have done. Which is a bit of a, I don't want to say a suck factor, because this is a fun episode. But it's a problem that would plague DS9 for its first couple of seasons, where this is an episode that really could have been on any of the other Star Treks. It could have taken place on the original series, Next Generation, or Voyager. And less said about Enterprise and Discovery, the better. But it's it's not, there's nothing really about it that makes it an inherently Deep Space Nine-specific show, something that only they could do because of the of the grimmer, more serious tone that this show has, where the others don't. doesn't take anything away from it. We still get a lot of great character stuff, the characters we know and love happening around all this, and it gives them all a chance to to do their thing. We're starting to get more used to them. You know, we're four episodes in, we're starting to get a bit of a handle on who everybody is. Everyone has their time to shine. And, you know, we start the, the series started, you know, Cisco's the focus of our first episode. Kira's the focus of our second. Odo the third. More so Bashir here and O'Brien. So we're kind of moving through the main cast as the show's going on. And everyone's kind of getting their first chance to step up to the podium and give their stump speech. So 
like I said, overall a fun episode. It's meat and potatoes trek. Problem occurs. Have to resolve problem before disaster. Cue credits. So, a good time. To wrap us up, our book of the week. Now, I've actually read, I think, three books this week, so I had to kind of decide what I wanted to do. But because we're talking about Barker, hell, why not talk about a Clyde Barker book? So, after reading a very serious uh, Canadian lit book, a great book called Complicated Kindness that I'll talk about here at some point on one of the episodes, I needed a bit of a break from that. So, I read volume four of the Books of Blood. Now, these are a series of short story collections that Clive published, Clive, because we're buddies, published at the start of his career. And I'd read the first three and just hadn't really been able to find the the other ones because they're not in constant print. I don't think they've been reprinted for some time. But I was out a couple weeks ago, found an omnibus version that had four, five, and six. So I was like, shit, I'll read that. So there's five stories in here, and as luck would have it, uh, we'll talk about each one here, but as luck would have it, the first story is actually my favorite. So we'll, I'll do a little bit on each one, because so, otherwise I could go for another hour and nobody wants that. The first story is called The Body Politic, and it's about this man, a factory worker named Charlie, and his hands become self-aware and plan to lead a revolution to, you know, throw off the chains of the oppressor and rise up and end up doing exactly that. They amputate themselves from his body and then going, go around and collect and meet other hands, free them from their host and a, a mini revolution ensues. It's so batshit weird, (laughs) but the central idea of our hands are so important to us. That's how we interact with the world. It's how we write. We do so much talking with our hands. They're something that we notice about people, how they talk, whether they're pointers or hand talkers, or we, we shake hands, we, we touch our loved ones, we feed ourselves. They're so integral to our day-to-day life. What would happen if you could no longer trust them? Great story. My absolute favorite of the bunch. Then that brings us to the inhuman condition, the second story. This one is a little clockwork orangey, where a group of kind of young thugs beat up this homeless guy, and one of the characters, Carney, steals just a simple piece of rope with knots in it and becomes kind of obsessed with solving these knots that are almost self aware and organic in his attempt as he's solving them. And as he's solving them, he actually, by opening the knots, he's actually causing demons that have been trapped inside the knots to evolve and which and be released. And with each one he undoes, they become progressively more and more evolved and learn each time. So as he's learning to untie the knots, they're learning about the world around them and becoming progressively more and more deadly and dangerous. Interesting. An interesting conceit. Um, a fun little story. It, it works in the, the short term, doesn't take itself too seriously, um, but a fun little tale. The next one, Revelations, probably the meatiest of the bunch. There's a lot going on. It involves a, a woman who is married to a, a very dark uh, preacher, Holy Roller, going around doing tent revivals. And they end up at this motel on the same night 
that a ghost couple arrives who have been involved in a murder years before, and they're there to try and strike some kind of reconciliation with each other, these ghosts, and then horrible things ensue. A super interesting concept that isn't, I think there's more there that could have been developed. It's one of those, and it happens to anybody. It's happened to me with my own short work. I'm obviously not comparing myself to an author of Clyde Barker's caliber. But when you have an idea that's so rich and interesting, but it just doesn't quite get to the page the way you intend it. A neat story, but I think there could have been more potential there to be mined. And then that brings us to four out of five. We have a story called Down Satan. The shortest, I think, story in the in the collection. And it involves a, a businessman named Gregorius who decides that God has deserted him. So to get back on his good side, he is going to spend his fortune to build a hell on earth to entice Satan to come to him so God will have to swoop in and save the day. You know, it's like putting yourself in danger so that someone will come and save you. You know, the ultimate cry for help. A fun little story, um, something that I think would work better visually. Um, I, I know, I think it was adapted in one of the Tapping the Vein comics, or Books of Blood comics, and it's something that would work much better visually because this hell that he builds with its fiery furnaces and excrement pools and all this wonderful language that he uses, very you know, very arcane industrial hell, what we think of when we think of Old Testament hell, you know, all, all the worst parts of the Bible, the worst parts of our imagination. And it, it's fun because we never quite know whether he just goes insane haunting this place or if the devil actually shows up and does all the terrible things that the police find there. And our final story of the book uh, called The Age of Desire is about a an experimental aphrodisiac drug that gets completely out of control. It's the most sexual of the stories and Clive Barker's work. He's never really, he's never shied away from that at all. This meeting of the physical and the sexual and violence and pain there. And this man who is experimented on basically goes into a, this rage lust where he has to fuck anything from, people to brick walls it, it doesn't matter and then he slow it just destroys him physically so it's the idea of the of our insatiable need for sex bringing us to a point where it's so overdriven that it physically destroys us so an interesting collection of stories as far as i'm aware it's one of the few volumes where none of them were really adapted no i'm completely lying because I just saw here that part of the body politic, I guess, was used in Quicksilver Highway, which I haven't seen. So, so many of these stories from the Books of Blood have been adapted. The Forbidden from Volume 5 it became Candyman. The Books of Blood itself, the Book of Blood, has become a film. Dread, uh, The Last Illusion became Lord of Illusion, Rawhead Rex, uh, Midnight Me Train, famously, etc. So, a fun read. I'm looking forward to finishing off the series, getting to Volume 5 and 6. But check it out. Start with the first. Start at the beginning. You might as well, because there are some wraparounds in the first volume and the end volume, which explains the whole idea of what the Books of Blood is, or the Book of Blood. 
So, well, we're checking out. So on to recommendations. I will not forget this week. I've been good, you know, three out of four whole times I've got this right. So I'd say that math lines up. Keeping with the monster as hero, I would recommend some Guillermo del Toro movies because we've talked a bit a little a little bit about him this week. So my two favorite del Toro movies is what I'm going to recommend. First being The Shape of Water, stunning film. I I still sob every time I watch it, which is why I don't let myself watch it that often. And beyond that, my it's close. Shape of Water wins, but my person one of my personal favorites of his, Hellboy Two: The Golden Army. A perfect presentation of the hero as, or the monster as a hero. Absolutely great movie. The the first Hellboy is good too. Avoid the remake unless it's out of a sense of morbid curiosity, because that's pretty much all you're going to get is a very morbidly curious time. Um, It's one of the few, one of two movies I've ever seen in an empty theater. I was the only one in there, and I actually fell asleep during the climax. I think that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about that one. Uh, For a book, speaking of, again, keeping on message, I would recommend the Sandman Slim series by Richard Cadry. I was turned on to this by a a friend of mine, Ron McKenzie, uh, who actually had something to do with the the Nightbreed Cabal cut and Scream Factory cut, and I believe his his name is in the credits, in the thank yous, so look for that. But he got me onto the series, and it involves a man named Stark, who, after spending eight years or so in hell, comes back to Earth with some revenge on his mind. And it involves this magical world in the, the underworld of L.A., and all these different fantastical and fantasy mythological characters, and old gods and new gods, and just plain old god himself, even though he's divvied up and he split himself into four different people. There's 10 books right now, the first being Sandman Slim, and that's what the whole series became to be referred to as, and then I think Hollywood Dead is the most recent one. I've read them all. Excellent. The The first is, I think, the most potent, the most powerful one, the most pure vision of what he was going to do. It's hard-boiled film noir-style writing. It's first person. He stark smokes, drinks, shoots people. Uh, there's, it's oddly presented and there's no chapter breaks. It's just this unbroken narrative from start to finish. Excellent. Check it out. So next week for episode five, yes, we've made it to the big five, which I guess it still feels like, you know, like I'm dating, you know, where you're like, it's our two week anniversary. So that's our text anniversary. Ugh. But those things can be fun too. So for episode five, it's the first time I'm going to talk about two movies. Yes, used to do this all the time on A Frame Apart, and I did a lot of plotting for the year for episode ideas, and I started to realize, shit, I think I might want to start to do two movies and maybe revolve a little bit around a central theme here. So kind of going back to the old Frame Apart days. So next week, I'm going to be talking about the leap when TV shows take the leap from the small screen to the big screen and looking at the Simpsons movie and Serenity. So join me for that next week. In the meantime, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can also find me on SoundCloud at Steal My Name Podcast. And I believe on iTunes, it's the same, the Steal My Name Podcast. So I want to thank you guys very much for joining me uh, for this little foray into the mind of Clive Barker. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken. <laughs>